today we are finishing up our sermon series that we started in January in Colossians. So we are going to be turning to Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. Let's just jump straight in, shall we? It says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Please join me. Let's pray. God, as we come to your scripture today, we come with open hearts, with open minds. We come bringing the things that we are happy to share and to show, the joyful things, the peaceful things, the splendid things. But we also come with the things that we wish that we never held, that we wish we could hide. The shame, the fear, the anxiety. We pray, God, that here we might release it all into your presence, knowing in confidence that you are a God who is big enough and bold enough to hold it. Not only to hold it, but to transform it. Maybe not transforming it into all of the shiny things we hope you would, but transforming it into something that declares good news. Good news to us and good news to the world. We pray along with Joan of Arc saying, if we are in your truth, God, keep us there. And if we are not God, then put us there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I spent my junior year in college studying abroad in the UK. And that year when Halloween came around, I had been living in the southern part of England for about a month. I had made a small group of friends, but really none of us knew anyone very well at that point. Which means that none of us had plans for Halloween. So on that Halloween night, one of the group of people that I was in suggested that we all went out for a late night hike through the downs and through the wooded areas that surrounded the university. Now, I'm not afraid of some of the things that other people are afraid of. I'm not afraid of blood. I'm not afraid of public speaking. I'm not afraid of conflict or criticism or of change. But I am vaguely afraid of the dark which obviously I couldn't tell my new friends that night because I was 20 years old. I was way too old to be afraid of the dark. So like any mature person would do, I made excuses about why I couldn't go. I had too much work to do. I didn't have any good shoes that I could wear. I was hungry. I had already taken out my contacts. That was the only excuse that was true. And once my new friends debunked all of my excuses and they gave me some food and they gave me my shoes and they helped me find my glasses, we then set out in the dark for the uninhabited fields and for the woods. And I instantly regretted going. Because as well as being vaguely afraid of the dark, I also have an overactive imagination. And darkness and imagination don't always complement one another. So my only saving grace that night was that there was a full moon, and that moon flooded those empty fields with a light that was so clear and steady that you could read under it. 
So it wasn't before long that I started to enjoy myself. We had found some of these huge hay bales, those hay rolls, and so we were sort of climbing on them, and then we all fell off of them. And then we were switching off groups and partners as we walked through the fields, um, which meant that we really started to get to know one another a little bit better. We asked questions, we joked around. And as we neared the last third of the walk, I found myself in one of those conversations so engrossed in it that I didn't realize that the little group I was with was at the back, that we were the last people to enter the wooded area that was right outside of the university. Now, I don't know how long we had been walking in those woods when the last part of our conversation had wrapped up, but we had been taught, started walking in silence for a little while. And as the silence continued on, the guy next to me started to pick up his pace. So I picked up my pace. So then he started walking even faster, which then, of course, I started walking even faster. And then right at that moment, a thick block of dark clouds, rain clouds, covered the moon and it went out completely like a light switch had turned off. And that was it. That guy next to me started running as fast as he could. Now, I, in large part, was certain that he had finally perceived the large creature that had no doubt started to hunt us down in the dark. But in small part, because I was not about to be outdone, I started to book it through the woods too. And as we both rushed past that larger group that was ahead of us, I noticed they all started running too. And then they started shouting. None of us were really saying anything. None of us were really speaking. But then that made me run all the faster because now there's a group of people shouting and running through the woods, which means there's obviously a threat. None of us stopped until we got to this dim light pole that was at the edge of the parking lot that led us back to the university. And all of us, we were panting and sweating, and we were all squeezing, about a dozen of us, squeezing to get ourselves around into the pale light of that circle, that, that parking lot. And we were all peering back into the darkness, trying to just see what it was that we were running from. Finally, After a moment of more silence, that guy who had been in the back with me looked at me and he said, why did you start running? And incredulous, I said, I started running because you started running. And he said, well, I was running because you were running. And then this other girl says, why were we all running? And I said, we were running because he was running. And I don't know why you were running. And as we all stood there squinting at each other in that faint light of that street lamp, suddenly the clouds passed and the moonlight blanketed the parking lot and all of our frustration and anger turned into laughter. And it turned out, as we realized, that we were all just running from the dark for one different reason or another. I hadn't really thought about this story in years. I don't even think my husband has ever heard that story. But it's a story that came to mind as I thought about our wrapping up our sermon series on the light that we follow and on how well we follow it. We started our series in January with the wise people who started their journey toward Jesus by following the light of the star. 
And we talked about how toward the end of the journey, the light of the star was blocked out by the darkness of Herod, whose paranoia and jealousy had detained them in the palace. And the thick walls of the palace had blocked out that dim flicker of starlight that guided the way. We talked about how it was their perseverance in hope for the moment when the light would appear again that propelled them through the darkest time of being with Herod and eventually led them to the Christ. And we here talked about how that perseverance in hope and in faith is important for us too. That when the light is momentarily blocked out by the circumstances of our lives, we cannot shirk our responsibility to remember that the light will show again. We cannot fall back on blaming God for not keeping us under the unwavering heat of a blazing light all of the time. That's how we started our series. And that's why we took up the book of Colossians as our guide. As our guide to what the light is and as our guide to following and how to follow that light. Because Colossians lays out both the theology and the practice of following the light, affirming over and over and over again that Jesus must be at the center of our thought and at the center of our actions equally. Colossians reminds us chapter after chapter, just as the wise ones did, that we must persevere in remembering that the light of Jesus is to remain our focus, particularly when we journey through the times of darkness, particularly, especially when we can't see that light. So there's a tone of perseverance that characterizes much of Colossians, but there's another tone to Colossians too. And it's a tone that centers not only on persevering in faith and in discipline of keeping Jesus at the center, but it's a tone that also presses us forward in urgency. It's a tone that motivates us to run from light to light. Sort of like those dozen college students on the woods on Halloween night. It's a tone that says, yes, we do need to remember that in times of darkness, the light will appear again, that it's not been snuffed out for good. It's not been put out forever. And also, it would do us well to not delay and languish in the dark, waiting for the light to appear to us again, but instead moving ourselves toward the light with every ounce of energy we've got. It's this tone of urgency that colors the last two chapters of Colossians. It's with an urgent tone that Colossians pushes us to put on those clothes of love. That's what Jeff talked about last week, for those of you who are able to be here. And it's the, this tone of urgency in Colossians that they're using today to usher us back out into the world to be people of action. I think that Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message, really captures this sense of urgency. He puts it this way. He says, pray diligently. Stay alert with your eyes wide open in gratitude. Don't forget to pray for us that God will open doors for telling the mystery of Christ 
even while I'm locked up in this jail, pray that every time I open my mouth, every time, I'll be able to make Christ plain as day. And friends, that's not a prayer that the Colossians are asked to pray just for Paul alone, but it's a prayer that's intended for the Colossians as well. It's a prayer that's intended for us still today. It is a prayer for an urgent spirit, a spirit that will not let any interaction, will not let any conversation or any person pass us by without our doing all that is within our power to make Christ plain as day in a way that they can see and hear and experience. It's a charge that is inherently urgent because the goal of being a Christian is not just for us to feel good about ourselves on the inside, but for us to also be participants of the kingdom of Christ on the outside. The goal isn't for us to just come here into God's arms for comfort. The goal is also that we join God as partners in making it on earth as it is in heaven. And so because it's not only about us and about how we feel and what we get, but about how we emulate that light and that kingdom of Christ to those around us, Paul directs our attention to how we must interact with people around us. This is the last verse, verse 5 and 6. And he says this, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Hear the urgency? Don't like take your time. He's not saying, no, it's good. Like whenever you get around to it, it's fine. Make the most of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. So, what's Paul saying here? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's one of those lines that I think we feel like we know. We know what it means, but maybe we struggle to put it into our own words. And so here's what I think Paul is saying here. I think he's saying, treat people with the benefit of the doubt and speak about things that have meaning and weight. I'll explain that. We have two parts. First, treating people with the benefit of the doubt. Second, speaking about things that are meaningful. First one. I'm about um, halfway through Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers. Any of you read that book? Yeah. The point of the book is um, for him to discuss how badly we as human beings interact with strangers, with people that we don't know, be it just people we haven't met or people of a different culture, and talking about how those poor interactions have led nations into wars, have led to the destruction of societies, have brought personal experiences of treachery and deceit. And so to illustrate how we engage with strangers, Gladwell recounts this study that was led by a woman named Emily Pronin. And in the study, she gives individuals what she calls word stems to complete. So, for example, T-O-U. You could finish that word stem by saying that it's touch, or you could finish that word stem by saying it's tough, 
but however it is that you're going to finish it. That's what she asks. And she asks for each person to look at the word stem, fill it in, don't give it too much thought, just go for it. So when Gladwell finished all of the word stems that she had set before him, he came up with this random set of words. Glum, hater, scare, attack, bore, cheat, trap, and defeat. Which he admits, pretty melancholy list. Wonder what's on his mind. So Pronin then asked him and all the others in the study if they thought that those word stem completions indicated anything about their personalities. And every single respondent, including Gladwell, said without a doubt, absolutely not. So as a quote, one person said, these word completions don't seem to reveal much about me at all. They're just random completions. So then in the next minute after they've affirmed this, each individual was giving a set of the word stem completions that were done by someone else, a stranger, someone they didn't know, had never met. And wouldn't you guess it, all of those people completely changed their minds about how random those words were. Because now that they were reading these set of words from someone that they didn't know, they felt very confident in making very specific character judgments about the people that had completed their word stems. One person said about the person who had completed the word stem B blank blank K, He doesn't seem to read too much, since the natural completion of B blank blank K would be book. Beak seems rather random and might indicate deliberate unfocus of mind. Mind you, these are just off of a random set of words by a random stranger. So Pronin, the organizer of the study, says this as part of her conclusion in response to the study. She says, the conviction that we know others better than they know us, and that we might have insights about them that they lack, but not vice versa, leads us to talk when we would do well to listen, and leads us to be less patient than we ought to be when people express the conviction that they are the ones who are being misunderstood or judged unfairly. So we don't listen to actually perceive what people are sharing about their nuanced lives. And then when they say that they've been misunderstood, we rely on our own perceptions rather than really listening to them. I think that when the scripture urges us to let our speech always be gracious, I think that this phenomenon is in part what it's talking about. We know ourselves to be nuanced people, but we struggle to validate the nuance of others. We don't want to be judged off of superficial tests, but yet we stand confident in our judgments of others off of that same superficial criteria. And friends, that's not grace. So if we want to conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders, toward strangers, and if we want to make the most of our time, as the scripture urges us to do, then we need to treat others with the same nuance that we treat ourselves. And honestly, friends, what's more gracious than that? Maybe we've heard it before to treat others as we wish to be treated. What is more graceful than seeking to understand someone on their own terms before we conclude that we know them already? 
So I think that's the first part of our speech about always being gracious. Which leads us to the second part. What, what does it mean to season our speech with salt? Jesus and his disciples, they talk about salt quite a bit. And commentators and scholars, they debate over what Jesus was really trying to get at by referencing salt so much. Is he talking about salt's inability to change its own composition? Is it talking about salt's contrast to sugar? Is it talking about how crucial salt is to processing all of the other nutrients in our bodies? There's a lot of fascinating things about salt. Personally, I know what I know about salt from eating food. Maybe you do too. And to me, when something doesn't have salt, it's bland. And when something doesn't, does have salt, it's flavorful. Which makes me think that when Paul is urging the Colossians to season their speech with salt, he's urging them to speak of the interesting things, of the flavorful things, of the things that are worthy of others' interests, are worthy of having another bite, of the things that leave others hungry for more. I think that there's a lot of cool things about salt. I really like how salt changes the chemical compound of food, making it more tender. I like how salt leaches out the moisture, makes things more concentrated. I like how it preserves food that makes it more edible for days or weeks longer than it would be without it. No doubt we can and will explore all of these metaphors for salt in one of the other salt passages in the Bible some other day. But ultimately... I think that when Jesus or when Paul here urges the Colossians to let their speech be seasoned with salt, they are urging the people of that day and they are urging us today to say the meaningful thing, to speak the thing that carries weight. They are urging us to use our words in order to say something with bite, with flavor, with meaning, and not to stick with the same safe, bland food that any creature can eat. When we are called to season our gracious speech with salt, I think that we are being called to allow the daring and the vulnerable and the risky things to bring out that flavor of grace. I bet we all have an example of when someone has done this in our lives. Just for a second, I'm going to invite you. Just close your eyes. Just for a second. And I want you to think about a time when someone spoke words to you that changed your life in a positive way. Now, as you think about those words, I want you to consider what it must have felt like for that person to have said those words to you. Because chances are that there was a bit of a risk in them saying what they said. Something that made them vulnerable to you, perhaps because they were risking praising you, or perhaps because they were revealing something about themselves. or Maybe a risk because they were making an observation that you had never observed before. 
you can open your eyes. So often we shy away from saying the things that have meaning and weight because we don't want to overstep our bounds because who are we to say? We're really good to criticize. We already covered that earlier with the lady in the book and the beak thing. I'm not talking about criticism. I'm talking about the positive things. So often something will occur to us just to speak into someone's life and we won't take it because we don't want to look foolish. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to speak out of turn or be rejected in what we offer. And yet, my friends, I think that when Paul is talking about speaking with salt, that that's it. It's allowing grace to embody everything and flavoring it with the meaning, with the bite that causes them to remember. So, Three things I want us to remember for today. We'll go back to front. Say the meaningful thing. Sprinkle salt in a gracious speech. Number two, a gracious speech that gives the benefit of the doubt, that longs to see the nuance in someone else and not just assume the nuance in yourself. Speak the meaningful thing in a spirit of grace. And my friends, maybe more importantly than anything else, do not walk, run from light to light. Do not run from light to light out of fear of the darkness, but run out of the urgency to see clearly again. Please pray with me. God, we are grateful for the way that you continually call us to wisdom, to understanding, to transformation that we do not stay lingering in faith and hope and love. We do not leave them, but we do not stay there, but that we take faith and hope and love on the journey with us, that we start enacting it, testing it, relying on it, offering it, embracing it. We pray, God, that as we continue to consider how we follow the light and how well we follow the light, that we will maintain a sense of urgency, that we will maintain a spirit of grace, and that we will take the risk to say the meaningful thing. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.